0: Welcome to the Christadelphian Classics Podcast, brought to you by Wilderness Voice. Principles and Proverbs by Islip Collier. Part 1. Principles. Chapter 4. The Heart is Deceitful. Bible teaching concerning the heart of man is even more unpopular than Bible teaching as to the purpose of God. We're told that men are defiled... Not by food that they eat, but by the thoughts that spring from within. That from the heart evil thoughts arise, leading to evil deeds. The man who trusts his own heart is a fool. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. These questions are therefore raised. Who can understand his errors. Who can know the heart of man? It's obvious that the heart here is used to mean the deepest recesses of the human mind regarding which we know so little. A human being is a complex creature. Even faculties which have been regarded as purely physical are so closely interwoven with the mental and And reveal such complexities of action and reaction that wise men hesitate to proclaim that any part of the body is quite without influence on our mentality. To this day, we use the word heart as meaning the centre of feeling and affection. It covers that part of the mentality which lies deeper than intellect and which often proves stronger than intellect and will combined using the word heart in this sense many thinkers have perceived that it is a very important part of our mental makeup but the bible has to lead the way in revealing how deceitful the heart can be once warned we should experience no difficulty in seeing what the scriptural condemnation means, or in finding illustrations of the truth taught. Nearly all the wars and disputes and wrangles that have disgraced mankind come from fleshly lusts more or less disguised with the palaver of the heart's deceitfulness. The higher the plane on which men profess to act, the more deceitful The heart becomes, for more disguise is needed. The Huns taking possession of Roman cities would probably not trouble to deceive themselves as to their objects. Christian nations, animated by similar lusts, deceive themselves much. They take up the white man's burden and sometimes make such a skilful mixture of motives with a basis of genuine ideals that some very vile actions seem to be sanctified and the perpetrators are thoroughly self-deceived. The bitter disputes and cruel controversies in Christendom have only been rendered possible by this deceitful wickedness of the human heart. The same may be said of the compromises and conclusions which have allowed the truth to be obscured. It's probable that in the abstract, everyone will admit the accuracy of this statement. And if some rather unkind critics chance to read the last few lines, they'll say, ah, this is true, and just hits off the case of the writer, a piece at any price, man, willing to compromise the truth rather than offend any of the brethren. If this criticism, which has actually been passed, is indeed a just estimate, the writer of these lines certainly presents an extraordinary instance of self-deception. He has greatly admired the peacemaking capacity of some who have gone to their rest, but he has never been conscious of much natural aptitude in that direction." Rather, has life been a constant struggle against a natural tendency which is always regarded as unmixed diabolism, a tendency toward intellectual cruelty, a readiness to be sarcastic and cutting in dealing with those who cannot see truths or duties which seem clear enough, a tendency to be impatient when men hesitate to accept a position which from the individual point of view, of course, is the only one tenable. It would be strange if the expression of these tendencies was all misdirected effort, or if the entire struggle was a subterfuge, or the the deceitful heart to cover an ingrained love of peace at any price. Still stranger if Some other writers who express themselves with such unrestrained vehemence are really lovers of peace who cultivate sarcasm and invective to overcome their weakness. No, we cannot accept such ideas. There are some laws which govern the heart's deceitfulness, and one of them is that our wrestlings with the devil, we shall overcome the obvious and easy deceits first. We cannot expect to understand and conquer the most complex deceitfulness of the heart if we have not even begun to consider its most glaring perversities. What is meant by a peace at any price man? It is quite a promising field of inquiry in dealing with the heart's deceitfulness. A man who aims for peace at any price must surely be indolent if he has so little regard for principles that he will yield them all for the sake of peace. We cannot suppose that his patience and meekness under rebuke are the result of rigid self-discipline. We cannot suppose that a brother who has failed to grasp the first principles of the truth will have succeeded in the most difficult task of all, subduing and controlling the diabolism of a naturally active mind. A supine peacefulness can only be the result of indolence. Now, take the case of one who, whatever his faults, is not lazy. One who, for over 30 years, has worked unceasingly in the service of what he conceives to be right. Can he be described as a a peace at any price man? He may differ from you in his understanding of duty, but he must assuredly have some principles for which he'll strive to the last breath, or why should he sacrifice so much in his incessant work? There is a possible answer to this question, an ugly answer, but one which we do well to face, for we are human and not immune from any of the failings of mankind. The ugly answer is that it's possible for a man to give a lifetime of unpaid work to a cause, though all the while the real driving power is a love of prominence and prestige and the praise of men. We must face the ugly fact that there is danger of such fleshly desires being in part the motive power in our own work. If such were the driving force, a man might be willing to sacrifice principles for the sake of peace. But most emphatically, he would not be a peace-at-any-price man. He would be the quickest to resent criticism, to be careful for his prestige, and to be severe in his treatment of those who should spurn his advice. The truth is that all men of activity are naturally quick enough to strive. Contradiction calls forth contradictions. Extremes beget extremes. Bitterness causes bitterness. If our well-considered advice has been spurned, we naturally expect the rejecters to get into trouble. And it's equally natural to be pleased when trouble comes. We may have escaped from this diabolism, but we do well to examine and prove ourselves in this matter. The heart can so easily deceive us by putting a varnish of piety on its ugliest motions. Men may refuse to admit that they rejoice when an opponent comes to grief, because they know that such rejoicing is wrong. A considerable element of the ugly feeling may be there nevertheless, Some men are conscious of the unholy influence and make an honest attempt to escape from it. Others yield to the influence and protest that they are moved solely for zeal for righteousness. They may easily be the victims of such complete obsession that in their zeal they become definitively unrighteous in word and deed. Under the stimulus of opposition we may come to regard men as the enemies of God, merely because they reject our advice. We truly must recognise the danger that a love of peace may lead to unfaithfulness in the administration of God's word, but we must also remember that the most persistent of fighters may be equally unfaithful for a much uglier reason. Even if he escapes from the subtle poison that is always generated by strife, he may nevertheless be destructive. Instead of following Paul the Apostle, he may only emulate Saul of Tarsus, and without Saul's excuse. Scripture warns us against both dangers. There have been men who have been indolent in the performance of God's work and have praised themselves for their love of peace. There have been others who have done evil with both hands earnestly and have said, see how zealous I am? In either case, the deceitful human heart furnishes them with ample disguises and so they wrap it up. The deceitfulness of the heart is sometimes so extraordinary that its perversities become positively partial. It presents such a mixture of comedy and tragedy as to make devils laugh and saints weep. For instance, it's a common tragedy for a difference of judgment to result in debate, strife, bitterness, and division. The members of a family are divided. They still worship the same God, cherish the same hope, hold to all the old principles. But on a point of judgment, they're separated as by a wall of ice. Economic law, which does not recognize these disputes, makes them meet at the same table, but The head of the house declines to give thanks to God in the presence of members of his family who are cut off from ecclesial fellowship. Such a situation has arisen more than once. Indeed, under certain conditions, a student of the heart's deceitfulness could expect it. What is the explanation? The stern parent who takes such a course would doubtless claim that it's a matter of principle. It is painful to him, but as a matter of conscience, he cannot give thanks to God on behalf of those who, by their unfaithfulness in judgment, have cut themselves off, etc., etc., If once again we adopt the method of testing these professions in connection with something remote from the prejudice and passion of controversy, the matter may be viewed in a truer light. Presumably, the Apostle Paul will be accepted as a model. We read that he took bread and gave thanks in the presence of all a ship's company. The all included a number of soldiers who were murderers at heart, as the context shows. Have we ever experienced any difficulty in understanding the Apostles' action? Assuredly not. We recognise that in publicly giving thanks to the giver of all good, he was not associating himself with the evil men in the company. We have all acted in similar manner when business acquaintances have met at one table, We've given thanks as usual without feeling in any way compromised by the fact that the visitor was far removed from the one true faith, or perhaps not a man of faith at all. Why then should anyone cease to give this open expression of thanks to God because of the presence of brethren who are, as may be thought, misguided as to the application of a recognised principle? but so sound on fundamentals that they would easily pass the stiffest examination that has ever been required of candidates for baptism. Again, a minority in an ecclesia is cut off because members feel unable to support a severe measure disfellowshipping certain other meetings. The members of the minority wish to meet in obedience to the commands of Christ, and they ask for the loan of some furniture that's available, the property, perhaps, of the ecclesia. A stern secretary writes in answer, refusing the request and adding, The furniture was bought for the servants of God, not for those who cast God's word behind them. It's easy to understand that a difference in judgment as to the merits of a remote and complicated dispute might be very annoying to a determined majority. But it's difficult to understand anyone describing such difference in judgment as casting God's word behind the back. Still more difficult is it to see how anyone would seek to justify the attitude taken in refusing material assistance. If an affable but irreligious neighbour chanced to have a meeting in the same building and asked for the loan of a few chairs, we can hardly imagine such a refusal with such a reason. Why is it that in so many instances the slight divergence makes a greater breach than complete opposition. That men are kinder to those with whom they have no affinity than to a brother who proves unexpectedly recalcitrant. Why the refusal of grace before meat in the presence of brethren who are supposed to have erred in judgment though it's granted in the presence of strangers whose error is fundamental? The answer to these questions is scorchingly obvious. We have no feeling against the affable businessman who will not discuss serious subjects. We feel resentment against the attitude of the brother who ought to see eye to eye with us, but who proves disappointing. And feeling is the basis of so much evil speaking. The tendency to exaggerate his fault and represent that as a matter of conscience and principle we must administer pinpricks is simply childish diabolism. Disguise it as we may. The desire to give a crushing answer to the one who attacks us personally I'm as liable as anyone to this feeling, is simply the old fleshly blow for blow on the mental plane. The use of sacred things for the purpose of administering a pinprick is like hitting a man on the head with a Bible. We must not plume ourselves on our refusal to give blow for blow if we simply apply the principle on the physical plane where we do not happen to put to the test. Probably few of us were much deterred by the Christian precept when we were schoolboys and since we left school, probably no one has ever struck us a physical blow to test whether we would return the other cheek. On the mental plane, however, we have had blows innumerable. How have we endured them? When a critic in making a personal attack, lays himself open to a crushing rejoinder which would do no good, however pleasant it might be to us and our friends, can we resist the temptation? Do we try? The deceitful heart will furnish us with ample disguise if we want it, We may hit back and persuade ourselves that our resentful feelings are all motives of zeal and piety. There's no end to the evil that might be wrought on such a basis. The commandments of Christ present an ideal so far above us that if we deceive ourselves sufficiently to start such evil work, we can easily find glaring faults in every man Who presumes to judge us? Many, however, do try to strip the heart of its disguises and to apply the command, turn the other cheek, on the mental plane. They recognize that the feeling of resentment when brethren prove disappointingly obdurate is a fleshly feeling, and the inner man must be on his guard. If the feeling is denied expression, it presently subsides. How can we be angry with beings as frail as we know ourselves to be? Man is more than half mere feeling even at his intellectual zenith. And in time of strife, he's far removed from the zenith. Only at the judgment seat of Christ will the secrets of the heart be revealed. There will be no feeling of resentment then for personal wrongs. If Christ can forgive our sins, it will be a sheer joy to find that he can also forgive others whose vision has been different and who have sinned in other ways.